I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back as they do. If you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll give a Bible to you. It's marked at the appropriate page for today's message. Keep that as our gift to you. Bring it back each week as we look at God's Word together each Lord's Day. This morning, we continue the mini-series on the gospel begun last Sunday, which will derive primarily from the book of Romans. It's just five messages on the central tenets of the gospel. And then on September the 19th, we will begin a series through the book of Acts. Jesus said this when He walked the earth, "'It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners.'" Now, Jesus said this in response to the criticism that he received for associating with people known to be sinners, tax collectors, and sinners, or other types. Now, Jesus' response did not mean that there are, in fact, some people who are righteous so that they do not need salvation, but rather some people think they are. And as long as a person has that view of themselves, that they are somehow righteous before God, then they can never have a right relationship with Him through Jesus Christ because they will never come to Christ truly since they have no need of Him, at least in their own self-righteous estimation. A person will never be found in Christ if they do not first see that they are lost without Him. So if the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, is going to claim, as he does, that the gospel is for everyone, then he'll have to show that everyone needs it. And that's what he does. In verses 16 through 18, he says the gospel is for everyone, and then he begins to show that everyone, in fact, needs it if they're to be rightly related to God. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation, notice, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, the word gospel means good news. And it is that because it is about, this passage says, a righteousness that comes from God rather than from ourselves. And that's in fact good news because we do not have righteousness of our own. None of us does. If we had to make ourselves acceptable to God in order to go to heaven, then all of us would in fact go to hell. And that is what Paul sets out now to prove over the next two and a half chapters, that every person is a sinner, and so no person can make themselves righteous enough to meet God's holy standard. We're going to see how he lays that out today then. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank You that we are here because we are here by Your divine appointment, as is every millisecond of every day by Your divine appointment. Lord, You are in control of everything, and You have providentially directed our affairs so that we can be here now, with Your book opened before us so that we can learn, so that perhaps, Lord, in Your grace, You would draw some to Yourself in salvation this very hour. Help all of us, Lord, to be open to what you say. 
with hearts that seek to apply it so that we can better this week, please you with our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week we supply an outline for the message. We give those as you come into the auditorium. And I say, first of all, in that outline, that immoral people are sinners. Now, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 says that the gospel is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. And then in verse 18, it goes on to say this, for, that is because. Now, if you have the NIV, it doesn't start with either of those words, for or because, but it's actually there in the Greek text. For, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, whenever you read of sinful actions in the Bible, you should always remember that our choices flow from our nature. We do what we do because we are what we are. The reason that we have a sin nature that's behind our sinful thoughts and words and deeds is because we're born that way. Every human being comes into the world with a spiritual birth defect, as it were. We're sinners from moment one. King David said this of himself, I was sinful at birth. And then he goes back beyond birth and he says, sinful from the time, in fact, that my mother conceived me. Now, you all were very cute babies. I haven't seen your baby pictures, but I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But as cute as we all were, behind those, those chubby cheeks, the precious cooing, is actually a would-be king of what we consider to be our own domain. And as soon as the child is old enough to express an independent will, we did that, all of us, by tantrums. And then so-called little lies, and then taking your sibling's stuff that you wanted to play with, and then blaming them or denying it when confronted by your parents. And then as time went by, you expressed your sovereignty over your world in other ways. All of us, by nature. The passage Pastor Rich read earlier says that before coming to Christ, every person was deserving of wrath by nature. It's just who we are. Now, many of you probably know the fable of the scorpion and the frog. A scorpion and a frog met on the bank of a babbling stream. The stream is too treacherous for the scorpion to cross, so he nicely asked the frog to carry him across on its back. The frog is a little suspicious and so asks, well, how do I know you won't sting me? The scorpion says, because if I do, I'm going to die too. And that sound reasoning relaxes the frog's nerves, so he allows the scorpion to climb aboard and they shove off across the flowing water. They get about halfway across the stream, and the scorpion stings the frog directly in the middle of his back. The frog feels the onset of the scorpion's poison, and, as it starts to, and he starts to sink, but he manages one dying breath. And he says, why? And the scorpion says, it's my nature. That's what I do. Scorpions sting people. Sinners, by nature, sin. Our sin nature expresses itself, according to verse 18, in godlessness and wickedness. That is, we are naturally godless, that is, against God, and wickedness shows up in how we are against each other, with our wickedness toward each other arising because of our antipathy toward God. 
since all sin arises due to godlessness, a desire to be free of God's requirements and His constraints and to choose our own lives even though He's the one who gave us life. Because we are sinners, we attempt to live life as if God were a non-factor, as if His requirements get in the way of our desires, and when that happens, so much the worse for God. Too bad, God. And in doing our own thing, we must, of necessity, do what verse 18 says, suppress the truth by our wickedness. You see, the Bible is saying that it's not just that people do wrong, they know better. But we've made a decision to live for ourselves rather than God and for others, and so we have to ignore and we have to smother, we have to deliberately suppress any truth that challenges our self-centeredness. Now, some of you may have been dragged here today just to keep somebody else happy. You'd rather be getting a root canal than to hear anything contrary to what you already think or anything that challenges what you want to be and what you want to do. And so during this time, you may listen politely and then get out the door as soon as you can, hoping you never have to return again. We suppress the truth about God and ourselves, friend, if you're in that category, because it gets in the way of how we want to live. My prayer is that God will graciously move on any heart that's in that condition this morning, moving you to listen, to return, to ultimately, most important, to turn to Christ. Now, I've called this point in the outline immoral people. You may think that all sin involves immorality, but we're going to see that it's quite possible to be a moral person and still sin. I've labeled this section, which goes from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, as immoral people because it's describing Gentiles rather than Jews in that section. And we know that because the knowledge of God that's rejected by those who are depicted in these verses comes entirely from what we call natural revelation. That is, the evidences of God that are seen in creation and in our own God-given conscience. That is, the, the people who are described here do not know about God through the Bible. They know about Him through the created world and their conscience of right and wrong. The Jews have the Bible. In fact, it was written by them with God overseeing the process, and it was first available to them. But the Gentiles are guilty, even though they didn't have what the Jews did, because they sin against the knowledge they do have. So verse 19 says, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This is why you've heard me say over the years that there are really no true philosophical atheists, because all people are given information about God in His created universe just looking at the natural world so that they can know that He is and that He is powerful and something of what He is like, that He is orderly, that He's benevolent in His care of His creatures, and so on. 
And so the psalmist said famously, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. People know God is. And you see this in the fact that they have to use God's gifts in order to deny Him as the giver. The late professed atheist, Christopher Hitchens, had a series of debates with a Christian pastor a few years before he died. Now, Hitchens had written a book titled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. But the problem for Hitchens is that without God, how do we have the universal standards of good so that he can write about what's supposedly good and bad? Where does good come from? Christopher. And so the pastor in the debate, in effect, asked him that, saying this, your book and your installments in this debate thus far are filled with fierce denunciations of various manifestations of immorality, and I simply want to know the basis of your denunciations. You preach like some hot gospeler with a floppy leather book and all. I know that book's not the Bible, and so all I want to know is what book is it And why does it have anything to do with me? Why should anyone listen to your complaints about weird beards in the Middle East or fundamental Baptists? On your own terms, you're just a random collection of protoplasm. Noisier than most, but no more authoritative than any, which is to say, not authoritative at all. Now, the remaining verses of chapter 1 describe the stages of human sinful decline. Let's read them together, starting at verse 21. For although they knew God, they they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with their lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, 
they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, one thing to note about these verses is that it all sounds like this is stuff that's pertaining to people who lived in the past because so much of it is written in the past tense. Verse 21, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to Him. Verse 22, they claimed to be wise. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God for images. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. But although it sounds like it's all in the past, it actually has very much to do with the present. This passage presents every single person as having possessed the truth of God but having turned from it, no matter when they've lived. Not just suffering the consequences of original sin, going back to the Garden of Eden, something that happened in the past, but sinning ourselves personally, every person, by rejecting the knowledge of God that He has given in nature. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo says this, Paul says more than that all people experienced the consequences of an original turning away from God, or even that all people shared such an original turning away. He insists that those who turned also were those who knew better and who are consequently deserving of God's wrath. This, coupled with the obvious universal application in verse 18 and then in verse 32, makes clear that this foolish and culpable rejection of the knowledge of God, now hear this, is repeated in every generation by every individual. Every person is without excuse because every person has been given a knowledge of God and has spurned that knowledge in favor of idolatry, idolatry that shows itself in its various manifestations. So people who do not have the Bible who have not even heard of Christ by name, are under God's wrath because they reject what they do know as evidenced by how they think and talk and act. So how is God's wrath then expressed? We know that there will be God's judgment in the future, but this passage is about how God's wrath is shown now. What does God do now in response to sinful humanity. Well, He does not respond by intervening with active judgment, at least not yet. Rather, His judgment comes by Him not intervening, by letting men and women go their way. And that's why it says three times in those verses, and I read it slowly when I got to this phrase, God gave them over. In verses 24 and 26 and 28, instead of God restraining the sinful impulses of people, He gives them what they want, complete with the natural consequences that go with it. As one has said, God abandons stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness and the resulting process of moral and spiritual degeneration. Now, this passage contains three stages of sinful decline. And in each of those stages, there are three items. What humanity knows is the first item. How humanity rejects what it knows. And then how God judges in response. Now, those three stages are in verses 21 to 24. That's the first. 
And then verses 25 to 27, that's the second, and then verses 28 to 31. In each of them, humanity knows something, rejects that something, and God judges. In each of these stages, you've got knowledge, rejection, and then judgment in the form of giving them over. So in verses 21 to 24, they know God, we're told, but reject God, according to verse 21, by neither glorifying Him as God nor giving thanks to Him. So God judges by, in verse 24, giving them over to sexual impurity. In verses 25 to 27, what do they know? They know the truth of God in verse 25, but they reject it by exchanging it for a lie and worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator, and so God judges by giving them over to shameful lusts leading to homosexual behavior. And in verses 28 to 31, they have the knowledge of God in verse 28, but they reject it by not wanting to think about God, so God lets them see what thinking is like when He's excluded. He gives them over to a depraved mind that leads to the destructive social behavior that we see in verses 29 to 31. And verse 32 summarizes the whole mess. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Humanity knows because God made us to know that wrong deserves punishment. And we even practice it in things like cancel culture. Canceling those who are deemed to have run afoul of our standards, but people still disregard God's. And they even encourage others in their chosen sin, thereby victimizing sinners further in their sin. Now, as an important aside, I think this is how we're to understand, for example, a young person today who is struggling with something like gender identity or same-sex attraction. This passage mentions as a manifestation of the depravity of humanity, homosexual behavior. Those things, same-sex attraction, gender confusion and dysphoria, would not exist if we were not sinners by nature, and therefore so much of what we are is disordered, including, including in this area of sexuality. So it's sin, and we need to call it what God does. But today we have people doing something they did not just a few decades ago, namely encouraging them in it, and thereby adding to their confusion. That young person is a sinner, yes, and those attractions are sinful, yes, but now we have others who are sinning against them by encouraging them in it. That teen is not the worst sinner, but their sin nature coupled with society's sinful encouragement today, is leading them in the worst direction. The sum of all of this is that humanity apart from God is chaos. And we're seeing it in our society right now. Immoral people are sinners. But that's what most people think of sin anyway, behaving immorally in some way. But not only are immoral people sinners, I say in your outline, moral people are sinners. And as you go through all of this, can't you just see 
the moral person who gives to charity, helps elderly ladies across the street, pays his honest share of taxes, doesn't cheat on his wife, is not a carouser or a rabble-rouser. And he's hearing this indictment against the immoral Gentile world, and he's thinking, yes, that's right. They are like that, and they deserve what they get. So as if to shake him out of his smug complacency, chapter 2 begins by saying, in effect, who are you to judge? Verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you, pass you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? This person sees himself as superior, and that's why he condemns, condemns those immoral people in chapter 1, but he does some of the same things they do. Only he's considered moral by others and obviously by himself, because he confines, he confines what he does to the so-called respectable sins. It's not overt immorality of sexual sin and perversity, but rather some of what's in verse 29 of chapter 1. It includes their sins of the tongue, like gossip and slander, sins of attitude, like being arrogant and boastful. The immoral in the previous chapter do things they know to be wrong and they approve of others who do them. But at least that's consistent. <laughs> this group in chapter 2 does what they know to be wrong and they condemn others who do them, which is hypocritical. These are moral hypocrites. So get down off of your high horse, in effect, Paul says. Because your style of sinning will be judged by God too and is under the wrath just like the other sins are. Verse 5 says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. And the following verses show that if you're going to try to gain eternal life apart from Christ, then you're going to have to bring your A game all the time. In your good moral works, you can't have any pride mixed in. One of the things that you hypocritically condemned in the immoral people, and you do yourself. Even your good deeds are tainted by sin, so don't count on your morality as your ticket to heaven. People who do good moral things are still sinners. Because apart from Christ, they never do it for the right reason, the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon told a story that illustrates this. He said, once upon a time there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown and ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and he discerned the man's heart. And so he as the man turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who heard all of this, and he said to himself, well, if that's what you get for a carrot, 
Then what does the king give for something better? And the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he's leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and he said, My Lord, I breed horses. This is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want it presented, to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and he said, Thank you. And he took the horse and simply dismissed him. And the nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, Let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot. You are giving yourself the horse. You see, if we give things to God in the primary hope that we will earn blessings or heaven, then we're really not doing anything for Him at all. It's for ourselves. And only an experience of grace changes us so that we do things, good things, primarily for goodness' sake, for God's sake. So sinners include the immoral and the moral and religious people. So with all of this that Paul is laying out, the religious person is sitting back saying, yes, the immoral need to be judged, and those self-righteous moral types need to be put in their place by God too, but we're God's chosen people. We have protection from His judgment in the law that He gave us and in the sign of our covenant with Him, circumcision. So having indicted the immoral and the moral for sin, now a third category of people is brought up for execution, namely the religious, and in particular those who practiced the Jewish religion, because those were some of the fiercest opponents that Paul would face when giving the gospel, since in their minds they didn't need it because they had what God had given them in the first part of your Bible, the law and circumcision. So Paul takes on both of those starting in verse 17 of chapter 2. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. These sins, things like stealing, adultery, idolatry, Despite their having the possession of the law and practicing circumcision, they make Jews just as liable to God's judgment as Gentiles. The religious person just as liable as the non-religious person. And the law will not give an exemption, and circumcision will not either. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you will become as though one who had not been circumcised. You see, being part of a religious group, friends, provides no protection from the righteous judgment of God on our sin. Yet you often hear people place undue significance on their religious affiliation. Someone might say, 
Well, I was baptized Catholic or Presbyterian or Baptist. But none of that is the basis for your relationship with God. And none of that can overcome the sin that keeps all of us separated from God. When most of us think of religion, we think of it this way. Religion is the stuff we do to obtain God's favor. And in fact, the word religion derives from a Latin word, ligere, which means to tie or to bind, as in ligament. So in religion, the ceremonies and the days and the rituals, they're all things that we do to bind us to God, to rightly relate us to Him. These religious things are, that we do are often thought of as an obligation, which also comes from that same Latin word ligere. In fact, some religions designate what are called holy days of obligation, days you're required to go to church and perform certain rituals. But understand this friend sitting in church in a religious service. Understand this. God hates that approach to relating to Him. God has always despised the I do the right stuff so I'm right with God approach to a relationship with Him. Here's what the Bible says. The Lord says, these people come near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me their worship is made up only of rules taught by men so the category of sinners is comprised of the immoral and the moral and the religious and so finally the bible just says as i say in your outline all people are sinners. And that's where Paul leads, starting way back where we started in chapter 1 and verse 18, and going forward through chapter 2 and now into chapter 3. And if you'll look at chapter 3 and verse 9, verse 9 says, What shall we conclude then? Do we, that is, do we Jews, have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already now made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Jews and Gentiles, religious and non-religious, moral and immoral people. Verse 23 of chapter 3 says, Famously, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in between those verses, verse 9 and verse 23, we have a long and really depressing description of all humanity. It's depressing, but it's in God's Word, and let's read it together, starting in verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those nine verses contain a 14-count indictment of all humanity, including you and me, 
outside of Christ. Three times the word all is used, as in all people. And when these verses describe our relationship to righteousness, it uses the word none four times and underscores it twice with the words not even one. And the passage refers to different parts of our anatomy as it describes our sinfulness. Speaking of throats and tongues and mouths and lips and feet and eyes, it's stressing that the whole person is involved in sin. And these 14 counts fall into three categories. The first ones deal with our character or what we are. And then our conversation, what we say. And then our conduct, what we do. None of us, friends, escape the verdict as it's the same for every single human being. We have all sinned against God, and so His wrath abides on us, and His just, righteous wrath will be satisfied. God's justice will be done against the criminals that we human beings are. Isn't that encouraging? Aren't you glad you came to church? But in order to get to the encouraging part, we have to tell the truth about why the good news is needed, friends. So if we're still sinners, and it's the wrath of God against sinners that the gospel addresses, then we should know something about that wrath and what it is. When we think of wrath, we rightly think of anger. So God's wrath is His anger at sin. But because our anger is usually unrighteous rather than righteous, we can have the wrong idea about God's anger as well. Unlike our wrath, one commentator says this, it does not mean that God loses his temper, flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. With regard to our sin against him, God is not neutral. On the contrary, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil. It's his refusal refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. His just judgment upon it. We get angry when our pride has been wounded, but there is no personal peak in the anger of God. Nothing arouses it except evil. But evil always does, and rightly so. It is this wrath of God that abides on all people. The passage that Pastor Rich read earlier says we all, by our very nature, are deserving of wrath. So how is this anger of God, how is this wrath assuaged? How is it satisfied? Here comes the good news. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Now that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, is a translation of a word that is sometimes, in fact often in other English translations, translated with the word propitiation. So what is that? What is propitiation? Well, the series Unlocking the Bible's Story contains this illustration that I think helps us understand it. Neil and Sally start dating, but Sally's parents aren't thrilled because Neil seems a bit irresponsible. 
But still, despite their misgivings, she continues to date him, and in order to keep peace, all have been cordial to one another. In addition to being irresponsible, though, Neil is also sometimes a bit wild, and even Sally worries about him from time to time. One night at a party, he loses control. He drinks so much that on the way home, he can barely stay on the road. He finally goes off the road. He wrecks the car, and the two of them are knocked unconscious. Neil comes to, and he tries to remember what happened. He asks the nurse about Sally, who tells him she's paralyzed and will be for the rest of her life. He asks to see her, but is refused. His life becomes a a living nightmare because shortly thereafter, a few weeks later, he gets a letter from her lawyer. She never wants to see him again, and her dad, if he gets his hands on him, well, you can imagine. Neil wonders how a single night could change everything. Now, in this scenario, you have three things. You have an offense, that is Neil's irresponsible recklessness that's caused irreparable damage. You have the offense, but you have the offended, Sally first and foremost. And then you have the offender, Neil, who though he is sorry now because of all that's happened, that won't change what he's done and it won't cancel the legal action. Neil gets his own lawyer, the two attorneys talk. Now, what do they talk about? Well, what's it going to take to satisfy the case? Really, it's what's it going to take to satisfy Sally? Neil may protest, and he think it's inappropriate that he's held to the standard for just one drunken mistake, but she's the one who counts. She's the offended person. The parties must come up with something to satisfy Sally, or Neil is going to stand before the judge. Now, suppose a sum is agreed upon and a way is found in order to pay it. That payment would be called a propitiation. Something that's offered when an offense has taken place to an offended person so that it will satisfy them in their anger. Their wrath is placated just as is done. The case is settled and it can no longer be raised by that person in a court of law again. Now, in our case, as it relates to God, you have the offense, you have the offended, you have the offenders. The offense is sin of whatever type. And Paul has made the case very clear. Everybody's involved. The offense is sin. The offended is God, is God Himself. And the offenders are us, the sinners. So God is the one who has to be satisfied in order for this offense to be made right. We can protest about how much should be enough for God, but God's the one who gets to decide. And He says sin results in death, even eternal death. So you can pay the price for eternity in hell. That will be God's wrath poured out forever. But the gospel, the good news is there's something else that satisfies God's wrath. Again, verse 25, God presented Christ as a propitiation through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. God the Father sent God the Son to the cross and said, this sacrifice will placate my wrath. This sacrifice satisfies me. 
So your case can be settled if you take what Jesus offers. It will apply to your case if you have faith in His blood shed on the cross for you. Now this analogy to the car wreck and Neil and Sally breaks down a bit because Neil and Sally are both sinners themselves, but God is not. And in the gospel, it is not the offender who pays, like Neil did, but the offended. God becomes man and pays it for us. His holy justice required that a full payment for sin be made, but His love for us caused Him to make the payment on our behalf. Hear this, friends. You will never see the justice of God more clearly than on the cross. And you will never see the love of God more clearly than on the cross. So here's your take-home truth. The good news from God is for everyone because every person desperately needs it. Now, we're going to close in prayer in just a moment. But I ask you, has God made the case through His servant Paul sufficiently in Romans 1, 2, and 3 for us to get the idea that we're hopeless apart from Jesus? That we are sinners before Him and His wrath justly abides upon us because of that and it must be assuaged? Two ways for that to happen. You pay for it forever in hell. You receive the payment Jesus made for you on the cross. And so I offer you the opportunity to receive the payment that Jesus Christ made for you. That payment made the payment in full for your sin, not just past, but present and future. He was able to do that because He was God come as man. He lived a sinless life. He lived the life that we were supposed to live so that when He died on the cross, that death was fully acceptable to God the Father on our behalf. You die without that, you pay for your sin forever yourself. But God graciously offers it to you now. So we're going to bow and pray. And when we do, I want you to realize that you're one of the sinners talked about in this passage. And recognize that Christ died on the cross for your sin. Repent. Lord, I see what you say, and I see the results in my own life of what sin does. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to go your way, no longer going my way. And you receive Jesus Christ. It's there for the asking from your heart to God. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again now that we are able to be gathered here on the Lord's Day to have our hearts quieted, our minds focused upon these sobering truths about sin and the ubiquity of sin that's universal, that it affects all of us, and it affects all of us completely. And so, Lord, outside of your grace, your love shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are helpless and hopeless. But we celebrate the fact that you loved us and you found a way to satisfy your justice and extend your love to us in the Lord Jesus in his life and death. So I thank you, Lord, for allowing me to be changed by that 
so that my position before you is no longer abiding under your wrath, but now I'm a child of God adopted into your family. You are my father and I am your son. I thank you for that change of position that occurred 40 years ago when I was 19. I thank you for all of those present here for whom that same thing has happened. And in gratitude, we're giving our lives to you, not so that we can get because we've been given. I pray, God, that you are likewise graciously moving on the hearts of some right now to draw them out of the world, out of their sin and slavery to it and to yourself. Save them, rescue them, deliver them as you've done for us. And we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand now for our closing song.